Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, in my common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is God's word. All right, why don't you guys pray with me. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, you are ruling and reigning over all of history. All things are made by you, through you, and for you. Even if man ceased to worship your holy name, the rocks in creation would continue in its praises of your glory. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Lord Christ, we live in a world that is hurting, broken, and ashamed. We long for your kingdom. Help us to embody a new way of being human. We pray for your resurrection reality to be animating our lives so we can faithfully bear witness to your kingdom. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, you are the true source and sustenance we need. We often bear heavy burdens instead of accepting your invitation to come and be under your wings. We ask that you would feed us this day and strengthen us to faithfully attend to the work you have given us. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lord, we say things we don't mean. We lie, steal, cheat, envy, and hate. We do things we ought not to do and do not do the things we ought to do. Lord, we are in an immense poverty that continually causes us to sin. We confess our need for forgiveness, and we look to our baptismal identity as our true status before you, clothed in Christ and forgiven. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord Christ, the idolatries of our culture are suffocating. At times we are overwhelmed and overburdened, yet in all things we long for the day when you'll return as our King and great Redeemer that will usher in a new world where death is defeated, Sin is bound, and the accuser of our brothers and sisters is cast down. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So our topic this evening is, uh, is one that could sound, uh, depending on where you're coming from today, it could be like, wow, this is going to be the ultimate snoozer sermon of all time in your mind. Um, or it could be one where you're like, whoa, what? They're talking about this? So church order. Um, that's, that's the topic. So this is the final uh, in a series called Foundations. And this is uh, a doctrine that often gets neglected. At, at the beginning of 2022, we spent time kind of recasting our vision as a church, and we talked about seeing our church as an outpost, um, which means that we see ourselves very much as part of the historic and worldwide church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're not trying to say we're like a new type of Christianity, per se, or you know that we've started some new group that's got it right. That's not um, how we feel. 
But at the same time, we have tried to intentionally place ourselves on the outskirts in a sense, um, both here, but also just in our individual lives, saying we want to engage with people, whether they're dealing with doubt, struggle, thinking about you know, like you know, disconnecting from the church, or if people are dipping their toes in and are just willing to engage with the church, we want to be there in that space, and that's part of the vision that we have. And often in circles that, that we run in, that I do, in churches that think this way, something like this church order is usually kind of pushed aside as, you know, red tape and stuff that just, it's just a hassle. It gets in the way of doing mission and things like that. But I've actually come to see, and, I, and in our church and also in other churches that we engage with, church order, including things like structures in the church, church discipline, even scary words like excommunication, actually are critical things to understand and to practice. So I hope that intrigues you a little bit um, because I think it's important. We, the series we're in now, as I mentioned, is about foundations of faith, and we took cues from an old confession of faith, uh, the Belgic Confession from the 1500s. And this was written by a guy in the, in the Netherlands who was defending the, the Church of the Netherlands against kind of criticisms through the Spanish Inquisition, and he was trying to show that they were orthodox, um, that they, they weren't teaching anything that was unbiblical. And this guy was, was killed for his faith, and as were many who were part of the, the Protestant Reformation at the time. And so as he was trying to prove their orthodoxy, they talked about church order in three of the sections of the confession. That's a lot. That takes up more space than almost any of the other beliefs that they had, and they were trying to show and prove, we believe in an orderly church. And this was during a time where the church was going through a lot of turmoil. So when I looked at that, I thought it was, it was important historically. I've seen the importance in our day and even in our own church. We really should probably talk about it here. Um, you all should hear uh, some of these things. So. In Foundations in this series, we began with the idea of a coherent speaking God who reveals himself to us. The second week, we talked about his creation, that all things were created uh, good and that there has been a fall. Um, and, by, and when you look at those two first ideas, you see that by nature, by God's created order, we get the ideas of order and peace and organization. And those are things that should characterize God's people, people who walk with him for all of time. But, like I mentioned the fall, we have to assume, uh, based off the scriptures, that there are other spiritual realities that are causing disorder and pain and brokenness. Um, I can't go down this rabbit trail as bad as I want to right now, but Stranger Things, right, season four? Have you, I'm not gonna give it away, but. If you watch that, you'll notice in the seasons, it's the, the darkness has become less and less otherworldly, more and more inward, spiritual, and personal. I mean, this is something that even, even culturally, people are thinking about, are engaging, and, and we in the scriptures have always been told these things are so. And if those things are so, if there's darkness that, that comes in and impacts our world, our hearts, our lives, our relationships with one another, then the church has to strive 
to keep things and ourselves, the people of the church, in order because there's force that is undoing that. And even if, you, if, you, even if that's hard to swallow, you go, a force? Well, just look around the world, like evil, darkness. I mean, there, it seems like something is rending us apart all the time. So this week, I'm basing this out of the book of Titus, and we read the very beginning of it. But in the book of Titus, you have Paul writing to this younger, younger leader named Titus, and he, he kind of tells them three things that should exist in the church. And I think this is really, I know there's always three, right? It seems very convenient. But um, there should be good people, sound doctrine, and good works. It's not that crazy. And that's exactly what he works out in the book, and I want to show it to you. So Paul tells his protege that he's fighting against some things. He lists off all sorts of things in the book, like arrogance, deceit, theft, gossip, and division. And he gives him strategies to use against those things, which the church has embraced and used for all of its history. Um, and as I said, out of all these foundational principles, this is probably one of the ones that's most important to understand practically. And, and it's one of the ones that I, I think we, our leaders here, but myself, underestimated greatly. Uh, when, when I started uh, work in ministry. So let's get into this a little deeper. Uh, good people. What, is, what does he mean? I'm just going to read to you out of the book of Titus here what Paul says. He says to, to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so you might put what remained into order, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes on to say, If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife, children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer or an elder... As God's steward must be above reproach, must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, greedy for gain, or, or but must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate. Here's the other side of the story, right? Empty talkers, deceivers, especially those, he says, of the circumcision party. We studied these folks last year in Galatians. They must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I'm sure they loved that poet, right? This testimony is true, Paul says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, Titus, he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to wine. They're to teach what is good and train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity dignity and sound speech that can't be condemned so an opponent will be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us 
bondservants are to be submissive to their masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Okay, that was a lot, but let's keep it simple. Christians here are expected to behave well. And why? It says to adorn the teachings of the church. That is to make the words and concepts we teach attractive and intriguing to people. Uh, Because the words are not only matched by actions, but the actions that Christians do should illustrate the principles being taught in the Bible. Um, When you teach about a God of justice and practice deceit, abuse, neglect, or rebellion, the words not only become difficult to comprehend, but actually become bothersome and laughable, right? They do. I'm reading a book right now. Uh, it's kind of a, a rethinking of, of uh, some historical narratives about inequality and stuff. Very interesting. It's called The Dawn of Everything. And in it, there's this uh, British anthropologist and an archaeologist writing together, David Graeber and David Wengro. And there's, this, there's a lot in the book. It's, um, but one of the most difficult um, and, and it's unsurprising, but it's sad elements is reading about a Native American candy aronk uh, Huron, uh, who was engaging the early French settlers uh, who came bringing Christianity. And he, he really engaged, he, he had listened, he understood, he learned the language, he actually went to France. I mean, this was somebody who really got to know the culture. And they brought these Christian teachings, but he saw among them in here in the New, the new World and also in France, he saw that they didn't care for the weak, that they had far more poverty, they sued each other, and that they were generally very miserable people. Um, and that is all very well documented, in fact. It's not, not only is that well documented, but when groups like the Huron tended to take captives, those captives usually wanted to stay with the natives rather than go back um, into their culture. That, this was a well documented, you could read Benjamin Franklin on it. He noticed it was a trend. Right, and Candy Ronk, when he was debating some of the things that were um, that that have been, you know, logged, when he debated with people, he would just laugh at Christianity, and he said it wasn't the doctrines; it was just how clearly people didn't do it, um, just how obvious it was that it wasn't solving the problem. He said, "Look at us; we don't sue each other. We have no impoverished people. You, you're miserable." Why in the world would we apply the beliefs that you have, right? It's kind of like what Paul said about the Cretans back in the day. It's like, he's not persecuting these people. He's just saying, look at you. You're miserable people. He was just seeing a major disconnect. You teach this, but here is how you act. And it doesn't make sense, right? So in the book of Titus, Paul, back, back in the day, was teaching us how not to get there. And unfortunately, over and over again, Christians and probably people of all religions get to that point of utter hypocrisy. So what did Paul teach us to do? Number one, appoint elders, interestingly. These were not just a new concept in the church. This was present in ancient Israel. You could even trace it back to Egypt where they saw good government um, enacted and had gotten some wisdom. So this is, this is an old idea to, to have people 
uh, who are entrusted to judge and guide others. In the Bible, sometimes they're called overseers or bishops or shepherds. But Paul tells Titus, these people must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkards or violent or greedy. They need to be hospitable people, lovers of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Um, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't do terrible things. <laughs> they should be disciplined, loving, and good people. This is what's expected of people who would judge disputes and lead and guide. Then he goes on to older men and women. These folks have experience in life and faith, so more is expected of them. He said older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. These aren't elders. By the way, elder didn't just refer to age. It was actually um, had to do with, with like a status with a, with a role. These are just older people. The bar was higher for people with experience. Older women, likewise, he says, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to wine. They're to teach what's good and train young women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may be reviled. Interestingly, these, these women here teach more than the older men. You notice that? That's interesting. But they're still accountable to elders. It doesn't fit any of the, the sort of like gender conversations we have. It's like more teaching and accountability. But however you read it, the bar is high. It's very high. Younger uh, women and men, the older women are to teach these younger women what's good and, and train them to love husbands, children, be self-controlled, working, kind, submissive to husbands. Now, by the way, this doesn't mean like the woman's place is the kitchen. That's not what Paul's saying. Um, I could just give you, like, like the easy, quick reference here would be Proverbs 31, which Paul would have known very well. Here's a woman who buys and sells land, creates consumer goods that she produces, literally wins and bakes the bread. I mean, that's, it's not like the woman stays in the kitchen. Um, we can't read these texts through the ideas developed after the Industrial Revolution, okay? If I just say that. The Bible's text will critique our ideas about gender. Um, no matter what side we're on. In this text, you see something almost more egalitarian than what we experience, but then with a higher emphasis on submission than any of us are comfortable with. Um, and that's a good sign, by the way, because this God we find in the Bible could critique the ancient world and can critique our world, which is the sign that we might be like dealing with a God who's greater than we are and isn't just a fabrication of our mind and culture. That's what you want in a God. But see here, the older women are responsible to, to lead the younger, and the younger Christian woman is called to a high standard as well, and so are the guys. It says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, and then Titus is a young man, so he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that can't be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Man, imagine if, if the people who didn't see our faith, if like Candy Aronk back in the day would have said, I can't find anything evil to say about your behavior. I just disagree with your, imagine that, right? And then bond servants, and we have to say here, this is not like American chattel slavery. These folks were bonded to serve for periods of time. Um, that the, probably the closer connection today would be employees, honestly. But they're to submit to those they work for, not arguing, not pilfering, which means no theft. In essence, they should be great and trustworthy. 
They should be a blessing to those they work for. That's how we should be. That's how probably everybody in the world knows everybody should be, right? But Christians should definitely be this way. Um, and that's, that would adorn the beliefs that we have. So yes, the habits we have, the temper we have, the careless words that we utter, um, they have an impact and we should care. But it's critical to say, this is not how you become a Christian. This is not how you become worthy of God or are loved by God. This is a very important thing to understand. Christianity is a gracious doctrine. It's a gracious teaching. God gives us what we don't deserve based on what Jesus deserved. By the way, interestingly, uh, Jesus in his short life um, was a laborer. He did grow up as a young man, and at the time he began his ministry, had just entered the age where he could be an elder, which is why he was allowed to read scripture in the temple and such. He kind of, he kind of lived all these different stages, and he was faithful, obedient, committed, and deserved to be accepted by God eternally. And when Jesus accepted a wrongful death sentence, he took, he took what we deserve upon himself and gave us righteousness. So we don't behave ourselves to be accepted by God. As Christians, we, by, we behave ourselves to glorify the God who's accepted us and has given us eternal hope. And that leads us into the next big idea in the book of Titus, which is sound doctrine. But here, just really quick to recap, we're supposed to be good people. Christians should be this way. And we can imagine how beautiful it'd be if we were and how much less criticism we'd receive if we were, right? Imagine if observers today saw Christians living in such a way that adorned the beliefs we hold about God and grace. That'd be sweet. So orderliness comes from behaving yourselves, but also from sound doctrine. Notice Paul spends most of the book on being good people. I just read you a really long section. He spends most of his time on behaving yourselves. He puts it first, and that might be a signal that behaving yourself has the primary impact on those who observe, observe our faith. Um, we tend to think that getting our faith right um, and presenting it correctly is what would have the biggest impact. It usually doesn't. I can tell you this because the Bible do, doesn't ever frame it that way, and because everybody I talk to who isn't a Christian, uh, their complaint is not with our belief structure, it's with one of us, every time, right? I'm, I'm not even exaggerating. So, the doctrine matters because it teaches us how to behave, but, and, and it leads us to grace. Paul says this to Timothy, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, and then he goes on to say, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, which is what doctrine is for, listen to this, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay, that's the doctrine section. Now, of course, um, Paul is not 
He, he knows the scriptures. He knows the gospels of Jesus Christ. He would never disregard teaching what's in them, but he still keeps it remarkably simple, and his doctrine section here is about two main things, and it begins with grace. And it, it begins with grace, and then it's sustained by a hope in the redemptive return of Jesus. And there's a reason these two things are so important. He begins with grace because grace is the key to understanding the whole story all of it. Creation was for the purpose of exhibiting God's grace. The law was to teach us who we are and who God is so we could understand grace. Jesus' work on earth was the ultimate act of grace, and grace is the element that awakens and transforms our hearts. Again, with stranger things, go out looking for grace, you'll find it. I'm not even kidding you. Evil is dispelled and overcome by love. Look for it. Go look for it. Have fun with that. See, grace is appealing. It just is. Love and favor that are gifted and not earned is just beautiful. Even Netflix can't get enough of it. And this is why it's good news that God is gracious. The fact that God is gracious is why people made in God's image are so drawn to grace. That's why. So sound Christian doctrine is always grace-saturated doctrine. If you've ever been in a church that was primarily judgmental or controlling or angry or afraid, first of all, I'm sorry. And second of all, they did not have sound doctrine. And that's why Paul wrote these things, so we could discern between good doctrine and bad. Now, grace requires that we know what sin is and evil it's not just like anything goes, everything's okay. It does, it's not that. You need to know what sin is to know what grace is, but it teaches that grace is the cure and the change agent in the heart. And then the other element Paul draws out is the return of Jesus that he calls the blessed hope, the glorious return. He anticipates it. It infuses him and everybody who reads this letter with joy. When you read the letter, you're like, you find yourself like lifted up by this idea of the blessed hope of Jesus' return. Christians should anticipate this with joy, that Jesus will return to redeem and restore things. We went into this in depth a few weeks back. You could go and, and deep dive on that if you'd like. But Jesus is to come back and restore things the way, to, to the way they ought to be and to beautify not only this world, but each one of us eternally. So Christians should be full of hope, hope anchored in God finishing what he started, that, that he created all things and will redeem all things, that, that this world doesn't just exist to degrade into nothing, but that it exists because there is something good about it that could go on and will. I know many of us have seen or experienced church in which there was more of a fear or dread or anxiety about the future. But that is a sign of something, unsound doctrine, according to Paul. The church in order has sound doctrine, grace-saturated doctrine that overcomes evil and sin within our hearts and a hope-filled doctrine that infuses us with peace and not with fear. It's, impo it's important to note here, by the way, that Paul was critiquing people, he was, people who taught things, but it was other believers in God, <laughs> other religious leaders. He, the circumcision party, he says, and, and you know, go back into our Galatians series. You can hear all, 
We've talked about circumcision way more in the last two years than we ever thought we would. Um, but, but you can read about what that was all about, but he's critiquing other leaders in the church and their doctrine. He isn't critiquing the culture's doctrine at this moment. He knows the culture doesn't have good Christian doctrine. Why would they? They're not Christians, right? The same is true now. We should be concerning ourselves with our beliefs in-house and in other churches even, and then out to our culture, we carry grace and that message of redemption and hope that can transform a heart and bring someone into the church. That's how it's always worked. So good order in the church starts with good people who believe sound doctrine are transformed by it, and that leads to good works. And Paul writes this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness and but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, first I want you to notice that the good works are, are framed as our posture toward those who don't know Christ. Did you see that? rulers and authorities, showing courtesy, and he goes, he's clear to say, to all people. And then, and then why does he say that we should do this? He says, because we were all once in the same boat. He, he exercises an incredible humility, saying all the ways that outsiders behave are the way that we behaved. We aren't any better than these people. And without grace, we would not be transformed. So when you go out offering grace to people, showing them grace, treating them in ways, you know, incredible ways that they don't deserve, it's because this is how God has treated us. And our good works, you see here, are brought about by grace. I, I explained that to you a little bit ago, but now we just read it, that grace was the cha change agent. The Holy Spirit, God coming into our lives is what changes us. So when we go out to people, we go with deep Humility, because we have been changed by grace. God treated us with kindness, patience, and gracefulness. God's grace makes us gracious. God's goodness to us inspires goodness to others. Now, do you realize we just read the entire book, the entire book of Titus? I just read the whole thing to you. Um, there's a few ap applications in the book I just want to highlight before we're done. A church in order has elders, he told them. That was, that was how the book began. People were appointed. 
They were not self-proclaimed. That's a really important thing. Um, Titus is sent to appoint elders in the churches. They weren't self-proclaimed. And these people are to watch over others and encourage them in these things. And I, I kid you not, this is missing in churches so often. Um, imagine if there really were, by the way, um, these, if there were people, trustworthy people, granting accountability to Christian communities all over the world, how much that would change the dynamic. Just imagine it. Church is best with good leaders and accountability. But accountability isn't just the elder's role. There's a really key scripture on this. It's from Matthew 18, and it's, it's given to all Christians for dealing with issues. And it begins with any type of sin, like if you feel like you've been sinned against, which I'm gonna go ahead and, and redefine, like here's sin, and I've said this before, anytime you miss the mark of perfection. So you know that feeling you have when somebody kind of slights you or they wrong you or they miss you or they... They don't you know, check in on you like they should, or they're kind of rude to you and they snub you. That's, that's, it could be sin. It's okay to say that. Maybe they didn't perfectly behave toward you, and you probably haven't perfectly behaved toward other people. That's, it's all sin. I want to just, because of grace, we can all admit it, right? We're all doing it. It's, it's happening all the time. Um, and Jesus taught us that when someone sins against us, um, you know, what do we do at any level? Ignore it and hope it goes away. Go talk to our friends about how stupid they are. Oh, wait, sorry, I reversed it. That's not what we're supposed to do. Jesus said, um, this is crazy. Go talk to him. Go talk to him. Honestly, in my years of ministry, if we just did this step, so many issues would be resolved. I am so serious. It's like so easy. I feel slighted by you. Go and say, did you, were you being like, what, what was with how you treated me earlier? Oh, well, um, you know, I, you, didn't, you didn't give me that dollar I asked you for. Oh, are you you're still upset about that? Yeah. Okay, where do we go from here? You work it out, you move on. Like, this can be done. But often these things go unresolved and they fester, right? And, and, and issues build and then you see another thing and another thing and, and then you start, and you start talking to people and then you get little groups and this one doesn't like that one. This is how it starts. And that's how it ends, is you talk to the person, right? And then Jesus says, so, so you're thinking, well, what if that doesn't work, right? What if I go and talk to them and it doesn't work? Or they don't see it, they don't acknowledge it. Well, Jesus gives us another step. So bring somebody with you. Talk to him again. Now, I'm going to go ahead and suggest here, bring somebody that's kind of, uh, you know, objective. I don't mean to add to the teachings of Jesus, but I'm just going to suggest that might be a good move. Um, not somebody who's already 100% sure you're right or whatever. I think that might be what he was intending. Bring somebody objective with you. And, you know, because there's always two sides of the story, somebody who can ask good questions and help to kind of bring some reconciliation and maybe interpret. You know when you're hurt and you can't interpret words? Like a person says something, but you're like sure they're an idiot and it, like, every, it just sounds worse. And then somebody else might be able to hear that and go, well, you know, I think they meant that. It really, it really does help. And you might say, yeah, I've done that kind of thing before. What if, it, what if that doesn't work? Well, Jesus says then, at that point, after you've done all that, bring it to the church. And, and 
we think because of the way that kind of ancient Israel was set up and, and the way that the, the synagogues functioned and such, that what he meant by bring it to the church was bring it to the, bring it to the elders. It didn't mean like, you know, probably blast it in front of everybody. And, and there might be um, moments where like elders, we've decided before that all the members of our church needed to know certain things and we've decided that they didn't in certain cases. Um, and I, I really do believe that's, that's wise. But Jesus says, look, there's moments to get somebody else involved and let those people discern and figure out what to do because it's probably going to be uh, more complicated. Now, I want to throw in one caveat. If you, if you ever feel unsafe, if somebody's abusive or there's violence, um, I think you can skip the go talk to them step. Um, that's, I don't just think that, I'm sure. Because this is actually a moment which in almost any society that we're talking about here, biblical or now, that's where you actually would go get the authorities involved. If you talk to anybody at the church, it'd be to help you navigate that, okay? So don't feel confined. Like if you're in an abusive situation, you don't have to go work it out with this person. But if you're not, if you're in a situation where it's a matter of opinion, hurt feelings, um, talk to them, right? This is the process, by the way. That, that process I just described to you is called church discipline. It's really just discipleship and conflict resolution. I kid you not, in my years of ministry, I have seen very few churches actually do this. It's very, very rare. And we had to, we had to learn how to do it here. I, I went through all kinds of courses in seminary. Nobody ever taught me how to do this. Um, I was mentored and worked in churches. Nobody ever taught me how to do this. Uh, we had to go get training from an elder of another church here and spend a whole weekend years ago just because we were just like, how do we do that? Help us. And, and that's what that's called. And Paul here mentions something that's, that's a really hard one. He goes even further to talking about removing somebody from fellowship. And that's, you know, what's commonly become known as excommunication. Doesn't that word sound horrible? Um, like, but then you bring it down and it's like, well, it's just somebody I formerly communicated with, right? We, if that's what it means, you've all excommunicated people many times. Um, but, it, but it means this person's no longer welcome in this community. Um, and, that, and there's a reason for this. Paul, Paul brings up a number of, he brings up a couple reasons in the Bible supplies more. He says if somebody stirs up division um, or foolish controversies after you've warned them twice, so he says, go to them and talk to them, try it again, and then at some point you gotta go, you, need, you can't do that here. You gotta go. Um, the Bible supplies more reasons. Sexual immorality like that in Corinth. So this was a pretty severe case that Paul said, this person should be put out of the church. I'll come back to that one. Um, in Matthew 18, Jesus tells us, if somebody will not turn, like if they sin against somebody, they're talked to, they're talked to with somebody else, the church talks to them, and they will not like turn away from sinning against people. At some point, you need to say, not around here, buddy. Bye-bye, right? In 1 Timothy, blasphemy, which is to speak of God as if he isn't holy, good, or praiseworthy. And I would say that's especially as a leader. So if you have some leader who's, you know, like pretty disrespectful to God, I think that's probably kind of a reasonable time to say you can't lead around here and maybe you can't come. Um, Romans 16 says like doctrines that create obstacles for other people. And there it was especially talking about ones that like undermine grace and say that certain people are excluded on some, you know, basis other than God 
having welcomed them in by grace. Um, Third John says people who put themselves first and refuse to submit to authority. Now, this can be a hard topic, but seriously, as I'm listing this out, I mean, were there many of those where you went, no, I think those people should be totally welcome. Like, we all know, we've seen these kind of situations. I think people outside of the church, I've, how many criticisms have you heard of people outside of the church who've said, why do you allow abusive, divisive, duplicitous, hypocritical people to keep functioning in your churches and leading them? Like people are asking that and we don't have good answers for it. I'm talking about the whole church. We don't, because we all know it's not good. And I think sometimes we just don't wanna deal with issues, it's sticky. Sometimes those people give a lot of money because that's how you get status in places. And I think sometimes, like, we just, I think we don't want to violate the principle of grace, so we don't want to say a hard thing to somebody. And I get all that. But at some point, Paul, over and over, Jesus says, it's okay to say, no, you can't do that here and our community would be far stronger. Now, often a person who's asked to leave will not see that as a good thing, so expect that. There will be it, people who are asked to leave usually are gonna, are gonna hate it, they're gonna be upset, and that's true. But there are good stories out there of people who later on have, who have said, thank you for holding me accountable back when I was being ridiculous. So that happens too. But those who are protected are always grateful. Now, even in this, even in excommunication, though, I want to bring, bring one more thing out, and this is from, I, I, I'm not going to go into the reading all of this in Corinthians, but Paul, I'm going to bring out this case um, of this man, he sleeps with his father's wife, and Paul calls it out in the book of Corinthians specifically, and he says, why is this happening? This man should be put out of the church, but he, clear, he clarifies why. He says, so that they may essentially suffer negative results and that they might turn away from this behavior and be saved. Paul is actually stating that the aim is that this person would turn back to God. Even in the difficult cases when, when church order is hard to do, the aim isn't just to make the church look good or to eliminate trouble. Those are results and they're not bad. It is good to give a good witness to the world. It is wonderful to get rid of a divisive person, trust me. But that's not the aim. The aim is that they would be restored. That you would give them the, 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 like, the most serious, loving consequence possible that they might go, you know what, maybe this isn't worth it. The aim is to seek restoration, to guide people to grace. And as I said earlier, you need to know what sin is to know what grace is. You need to know what, what like sin brings upon you to know how good it is to be under grace. If, if abuse and wrongs and sins are overlooked, then grace is cheapened and disorder is the result. In the church, we should seek to promote and develop good people. We do so by preaching sound doctrine, teaching people about grace and hope in Christ's blessed return. Then we should hold people to good works and encourage them to deal with sin and conflict. It can sound so simple, but it's some of the hardest work to do. 
over the years, I've found it to be very, very complicated, but it's worth it. By God's grace, we can do it to his glory. I want to remind you today as we approach the Lord's table that this principle of grace that I shared that's the key principle um, is right in the midst of our worship for a reason. Remember the thing that changes us is that Jesus, the innocent one, suffered and died for those of us who are sinful. When we come and we receive him, we receive his body that was broken for us and his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of many. This is the way that we're transformed. And then when we walk away from this table, we should remember that this is the way that we're sent out into the world. This is the message we bring. This is the pattern for Christian living, to be ourselves breaking for others and pouring ourselves out, not going out after our own agendas, seeking power and influence, but going out as servants, willing to love and lay down our lives. And when we eat of this gospel and we carry this good news gospel out, the doctrines of our church will be adorned beautifully. So that's the invitation tonight. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by people like us, by, by Judas, a person in the church who had an issue with sin, the night he was betrayed, he broke bread and he gave it out to them and he said, this is my body broken for you. Remember me every time that you eat of this. And that same night, he took the cup. He said, this is a new promise, a new covenant in my blood. This is me poured out, my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. And then he sends his disciples out on the day of Pentecost, which is what is celebrated today uh, across the church by filling them with his spirit um, and giving them the gifts and the power to take the gospel out into the whole world. So this, this table becomes our pattern for ministry. Lay down our lives, pour them out. For the next two minutes, we're gonna take a time of silence just to reflect, for prayer, for confession. Um, after that, we're gonna open up this table. We're gonna have um, worship and singing at the same time. Uh, and this table is kind of, this is the gospel being stewarded out and you're welcome to come and receive it. If you even have just a little bit of faith, um, you don't have to have it all together. All you have to be able to do is look at that message of grace and say, yeah, I'll receive that from you, Jesus. That's all you need. But also we wanna be um, a community that is orderly enough to say, this is sacred. Um, please respect that. If you're here just to observe, you are welcome. But you can also just reserve this for people who trust in Jesus. After this time of worship and taking the Lord's Supper, it's dinner time. I think we're gonna put a basketball game on because that's what friends do. So stick around. I'm gonna pray to open up our time and then leave that two minutes of silence. Father in heaven, this idea of, of whew, like church order, excommunicate, I mean, for some of us, this is really um, you know, disconnected. For other, others of us, we know people that have gone through this kind of stuff, um, people whose hearts have been protected um, by moments like these. Um, also, we, we have a lot of stories of situations like this that remain unresolved um, and situations in which people have been very unhappy. This is not easy stuff. But God, help us to engage in it so that we can be a community that is healthy, that loves each other well, and that represents your kingdom to this world. Because we know 
in families, in government, all throughout this world, this idea of orderliness and morality is desirable. People want it. People want to see all sorts of um, institutions shaped by this. So may we be a light and show people how it's done because we've been transformed by you because we love you. Father, now as we open our hearts to you, if there's anything that you're doing in, uh, in us, um, just open it wide open. Gracefully show us what we need to see. Reveal your gospel to us, your grace, your hope. Give us boldness um, to walk into orderly Christian lives because it's hard to do. Fill us with your spirit and help us.